Happy Sunday morning, everyone. Welcome back to episode four of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira, and I'm your host. So we are actually one month into Heavier Than I Look as of today. This is episode four, which is so, so crazy, but also really exciting. And then also we are halfway through the semester here at Notre Dame, which is so crazy as well. Um, It has flown by. We still have eight weeks left, so eight more episodes of Heavier Than I Look while at school and then continuing on into the winter. Um, But this episode is actually really, really fascinating. I had expressed my excitement last week about this episode, and I think you guys are going to find it super duper interesting. Um. So this, and actually, too, I want to share a couple updates in terms of the podcast world. This week, this past week has been very exciting with Heavier Than I Look development. So this past Tuesday, I actually made the decision to share this podcast on my personal Instagram account um, to roughly like 1,000 followers of whom, m- most of whom never knew I had struggled with an eating disorder. And point blank, I was, I was terrified. Um, But it was a decision made in order to increase the accessibility of this healing platform for those who might need it most. And as I've said before, and as I'll say again, eating disorders demand silence. And this was my own mini rebellion against that demand, which is why today's episode is dedicated to every single person who offered their support, encouragement, or even shared their own story about disordered eating and body dysmorphia with me privately. I'm immensely grateful to every single one of you, and there are simply too many to thank in the space of this dedication. My admission was met with kindness, optimism, sympathy, and to those listening today, please know how much your words meant to me. I truly cannot express how grateful I am, so thank you. So the first episode of HTIO was written through a psychological lens, exploring the types of eating disorders and the risk factors associated with each. And the second episode was a testimonial of my own struggles with disordered eating and body dysmorphia. The third episode looked at eating disorders through a neurological lens with a focus on the entanglement of trauma, triggers, and disordered eating. And then this week's episode will explore eating disorders through a historical lens. We will answer questions such as where, when, how, Did eating disorders emerge in history? How have our understanding of eating disorders been shaped by the historical context that they exist within? And how has our understanding of eating disorders changed over thousands of years? Because as I had mentioned um, before, behavior mirroring eating disorders has existed for thousands of years, which is like mind-boggling to even believe that. So let's start from the beginning, (laughs) thousands of years ago. (laughs) So in ancient communities such as Rome, Egypt, Arabia, around the time of 700 BC, the wealthy of these communities would overindulge at banquets. So they would have these luxurious, lush banquets of a wide variety of foods and tastes. And they would overindulge and they would eat to extreme fullness. And then they would self-induce 
vomiting to consume even more. And that was a common practice in these ancient communities. Um, And this today, that behavior today, might result in a bulimic diagnosis, which is interesting to see that um, bulimia technically existed before anorexia in terms of our documentation of eating disorders in history. And then versions of anorexia did exist in ancient communities, but in fact it it wasn't as prevalent and it wasn't as accepted, I guess, in, um, in these ancient communities and with these wealthy families. The first recorded case of anorexia was of a wealthy upper-class Roman woman whose restrictive tendencies were inspired by her religious beliefs. And this kind of leads us into the next, like, landmark in eating disorder history. And this is fascinating. I had no idea before reading this and doing some research that this was a thing. Um, but a lot of a lot of female saints and a lot of devoted religious peoples um, during the like time during the time of like the 13, 1380, um, 13, 1340s to 1380, they kind of practiced this thing known as anorexia mirabilis which was common in the Middle Ages in Europe. And specifically, St. Catherine of Siena, who lived from 1347 to 1380, is known to have fasted for long periods of time to prove her devotion to God. And this denial of self was viewed as the ultimate religious sacrifice. St. Catherine of Siena's case and others of female saints led to the introduction of what's known as anorexia mirabilis. And this was an effort to echo the suffering of Jesus by enduring voluntary self-inflicted pain. Yet, clearly these behaviors were distorted and troublesome, and they often led to malnutrition and health complications, even resulting in death. St. Catherine of Siena was 33 when she died. And although the records of how she died are not fully comprehensive, they you know, there's reports and there's theories that her depriving herself of food and her denying herself of food and nutrition may have contributed to an early death. St. Catherine of Siena was canonized in 1461 by the Catholic Church because of these efforts to cleanse and purify herself. It's just kind of fascinating to see how eating disorder culture kind of began, although it, we do see some roots of it in ancient communities, there are some roots in the Catholic Church, which is fascinating. And then we jump roughly 300 years to 1689, when anorexia was first formally diagnosed as a medical condition. English physician Richard Morton suggested that his 20-year-old patient sadness was eating away at her, quote, unquote, and she appeared skeletal. So anorexia then was first categorized as a disease in 1873, nearly 200 years after the first diagnosis. So as we can see, the history of eating disorders is this sporadic, every couple hundred years, 
you get a new report or you get some more information or you get some more tracking of evidence. And this is something that I had found in my research as well. And I had to jump from multiple sites to get more information about it. So we have the ancient communities, bulimic practices, and then we have anorexic tendencies manifesting itself within female saints in the Catholic Church to echo the suffering of Jesus and to, in some ways, get closer to God. That was seen as the, the vehicle by which you elevated yourself and got closer to God. And then we jump to 1689 when anorexia was first diagnosed by English physician Richard Morton. And then again, we jump nearly 200 years after the first diagnosis to 1873 when anorexia was first categorized as a disease by Sir William Gull. Sir William Gull was a physician to England's royal family, and he termed the suffering as anorexia nervosa. And the world of medicine and psychiatry started to wonder about this mysterious condition and what, what might cause it. So no longer was anorexia and bulimia ties to spiritual perfection, but they were instead attributed to emotional distress or hormonal imbalances. So again, the conversation surrounding eating disorders shifts. And the conversation surrounding eating disorders only really started in 1689. During the time of St. Catherine of Siena, and obviously during the time of ancient communities, it wasn't something talked about. It was something accepted. It was something glorified. It was something reasonable. (laughs) It was certain behaviors that indicated either your devotion to God, your wealth, your status. And then the conversation surrounding eating disorders shifts in 1873 with Sir William Gull. And during this time, there was discussion that anorexia might be a development of tuberculosis, endocrine deficiency, or perhaps a stalled pituitary gland functioning. Obviously, these things are since disproven, but the conversation and the research surrounding eating disorders starts to pick up a little bit. But then we jump nearly another 100 years to 1952, where anorexia was the first eating disorder to make it in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM. Yet it was solely categorized as a psychophysiological gastrointestinal reaction. (laughs) And quite a mouthful. And it was paired along with gastrointestinal disorders, which undoubtedly limited the scope of its ability to be diagnosed and treated properly. So when anorexia nervosa was first described and treated as a disorder, it was first tied to gastrointestinal disorders, to hormone imbalances, to tuberculosis, to endocrine deficiencies, and a lot of those things. So clearly it was limited in its scope in terms of how to diagnose it, how to treat it, 
Um, and then the conversation kind of shifts again to become less physical and more of an emotional distress, more of a psychological, more of a physiological discussion surrounding eating disorders. Bulimia, on the other hand, was first discussed medically in the early 1900s. So in 1952, anorexia was introduced into the DSM, clearly under the wrong category, but bulimia was first discussed medically in the early 1900s. So Dr. Pierre Jeannette observed his patients engaging in compensatory behaviors, such as binging, purging, and abusing laxatives. And the medical dialogue surrounding these two disorders shifted from a focus, like I said, of physical components to include a more holistic, psychological, and emotional approach. So we've tracked another shift in eating disorder thinking within the medical community. And we're going to track more shifts of eating disorder thinking and thought and behavior in next episode when we talk about culture as an ideological factor of eating disorders. But for now, we're going to jump in to the 1940s, which is where the discussion of eating disorders in the medical community really ramped up. So one of the most compelling research studies to come out of the 1940s was that of the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. The United States was embroiled in World War II against, this, against the Axis powers, and the whole of the nation was involved in the war effort. In May of 1942, the government began rationing certain foods to the public. Such items included coffee, meats, canned milk, canned fish, cheese, fats, and this was an attempt to alleviate the burden on U.S. supplies and resources during the war and to aid the Allies overseas. And just a little history lesson, um, the United States was fighting a multi-front war. They were fighting the Japanese in the Pacific and then also the Axis powers um, on the other side of the country. So clearly they had a lot going on (laughs) and they started to ration foods. So physiologists Ansel Keys and psychologist Joseph Brozek sought to explore how individuals might be affected with severely restricted food intake and hoped to identify how these individuals might adapt to a refeeding process after the war was complete. So not only were they concerned about the citizens of the United States with their rationing and with limited food intake and with limited nutritional variety, but they were also concerned about prisoners of war, of people who were, you know, starved and emaciated and not given really any sustenance at all. So these two um, researchers, Ansel Keys and Joseph Brozak, in November of 1944, so roughly a year before the war was to end, they conducted a study at the University of Minnesota. And in order to understand the most effective rehabilitation diet, they hired 36 subjects, 36 healthy male subjects who volunteered, who, interestingly enough, were conscientious dissenters of the war. They did not agree with the war, but they were committed to this study because they wanted to see how they could help. Um, especially in the aftermath of the war. So these 36 subjects experienced semi-starvation for six months. So they had a control period before the semi-starvation period and then six months of semi-starvation. And then 
three they had planned on three months of rehabilitation afterwards uh that we'll see got a little bit complicated in the aftermath and consequently this study offered insight into symptoms related to eating disorders specifically the psychological and physiological effects of anorexia and bulimia and participants cognition physicality digestion personality and emotional capacity were all significantly altered because of just six months of semi-starvation. So some alterations that we can track in the patients, and these are where like the key insights into eating disorder, rehabilitation, and recovery comes in. So number one, all of the subjects showed a preoccupation with food and eating. So this would come in the form of daydreams about food. This would occupy their everyday conversations. This would, when they would watch film, they, the researchers would track their eye movements and their eye movements were surrounding the food. They were preoccupied so much with food during the semi-starvation and during the rehabilitation process that they literally could not take their eyes off of food and they also could not stop talking about food. And this was so much so that a lot of the subjects also lost their ability to concentrate on other things besides food. And what's, what's really interesting, and this is like one of the most fascinating details to come from the study, is that three participants of the 36 men, so 8% of the total cohort even altered their occupations to involve food in some way so two actually ended up becoming chefs and then one went into agriculture business and I thought that was so interesting because clearly their preoccupation was with food was so much so that they decided I'm going to like work with food (laughs) in the future um and I'm going to be around with be around food in the future as well The participants also showed a possessiveness over food and other addictions were also kind of formed in the place of a lack of food. So a lot of the participants started gum chewing. They started using tobacco and this provided relief from the hunger. And it also mirrored a lot of like the biological processes underlying eating. So salvation, the use of your tongue and your mouth and different things like that, which paralleled the experience of eating and was used to mirror the experience of eating because they weren't eating during the semi-starvation period. And these habits were also very difficult to quit during the rehabilitation and afterwards. And then the participants also, a lot of the participants actually developed binge eating. So they would eat several meals in one sitting. And, and this is because they, their hunger cues were so disrupted by the semi-starvation period. Their bodies were in survival mode. So they became super preoccupied with food and also couldn't normally, you know, tell or discern when they were not hungry anymore, when they were satiated, when they were full. And because of the binge eating, they developed gastrointestinal imbalances and discomfort and headaches. And also they had like an extreme distaste in wasting food. 
So their possessiveness over food manifests, manifested itself in binge eating. And also some of the participants like would rummage through the garbage to get more food. And considering that these participants were completely devoted to the efforts of the study in the beginning and like had volunteered and were completely healthy and had nothing objectively wrong with them, they, not that eating disorders are inherently wrong, but inherently like make that person wrong. But these participants completely shifted their reaction and their interaction with food. And even so, after five months of refeeding, so initially they were doing six months of semi-starvation, three months of refeeding, and the refeeding process, that time period was when Keys and Brozek were going to get their most information because, again, they were looking to study effective rehabilitation diets for prisoners of war, for soldiers, for other people who had limited food intake during the war. And so after five months of refeeding, so they, they soon learned that three months of, of refeeding was not going to be enough for a lot of these participants. And after five months of refeeding, the binging and purging behaviors continued for these men. And they also developed body image concerns, which is really unfortunate, but it's also very telling to the experience of someone who has dealt with eating with an eating disorder. And these men also started to socially isolate themselves. They felt socially inadequate. They developed new anxiety and depressive symptoms, which were not there beforehand. And these symptoms lasted for a long time for these participants, even after just six months of semi-starvation. And then, of course, you know, perhaps most evidently, they had physical issues. So they lost a ton of weight. They were nutritionally deficient. They developed a cold intolerance. They developed dizziness, hair loss, um, and also their basal metabolic rate, the BMR, actually shifted for them. And the BMR is the amount of energy and calories the body requires at rest. So that also shifted for them. So clearly, and this is just kind of a snapshot of what the results of the study looked like, but clearly changing your eating patterns to such a restrictive manner has like countless effects on your body and psychologically, physically, cognitively, digestively uh <laughs> emotionally like there are countless it's the the list goes on and on and on um and before today i had heard about the minnesota starvation experiment yet never really done any research on it and personally i found this experiment the most fascinating part of my research for this episode mostly because how similar i felt my own experience was to the subjects of the experiment and obviously, my own eating disorder does not in any way mirror the experience of um, like a prisoner of war or someone who is completely emaciated and completely deprived of all food from another from an external source. But I in terms of the 
effects of the semi-starvation period. Every single alteration subject I have faced myself. So the preoccupation with food. I, I don't know if I'm going to go into like the food business. I don't, <laughs> I don't foresee that in my future, but preoccupation with food and eating, uh, possessiveness over food in a way, binge eating, obviously, as we had talked about, gastrointestinal imbalances and discomfort, um, body image concerns, social isolation, as we had talked about in episode two, feeling socially inadequate, developing some anxiety, depression, physical issues as well. Um, clearly, it, it felt, it honestly felt like this experiment was redone starting in 2014 and is ongoing today. But instead of the 36 healthy men as a subject, there's only one. And that one is me. <laughs> so it was fascinating to me to read about this stuff because in a way it validated my own experience and my own recovery. And this was really helpful to read about because you read about the effects of 36 healthy men who objectively would be able to handle six months of, you know, semi-starvation and figure out a way to rehabilitate and return to their normal lives completely as they were before. But as you can see with what we have just shared, that was not the case. And that is what I felt as well and what I still feel today. And it's also interesting to note that these men only face six months of semi-servation. And I know that's, you know, <laughs> that sounds wrong to say, only face six months of semi-servation. But uh, if you consider people with eating disorders and their experiences, normally it lasts for years and years and years. And, you know, everybody's experience is different, but in general, when you account for relapses and you account for the recovery time period as well, you realize these things last for for much longer than six months and much and obviously much longer than the three month rehabilitation period. So it was very interesting to read about this experiment in contrast and in comparison to my own. And also it's important to note this experiment is only in comparison to an eating disorder survivor's experience is only a portion of it, you know. The six-month semi-starvation to the three-month recovery is generally not what an eating disorder patient goes through. It's, it's normally much longer than that, which perhaps speaks to a greater severity of these, of these side effects that eating disorder patients have to face for a long, long time. Um, other findings of the study include that the finding that starvation might be reinforcing, and this was one of the first, you know, concepts that came out of it that is still kind of being discovered today. Um, and it was the first time that anybody thought that starvation might be reinforcing because if 
objectively, if you think about starvation, you're like, how can that be a reinforcing behavior that incites a incites repetition? But caloric restriction, even in, in its extreme forms, is accompanied with food preoccupation, but may function as a distraction and avoidance behavior. And preoccupation leads to the mistaken impression that there is nothing else that constitutes one in one's individuality. And this is something that they had tracked during the experiment and something that is easily traceable during the experience of eating disorder survivors. But this is even more pronounced if the beha- behavior of eating disorder or just of disordered eating and also bodily change is rewarded by others. So it makes recovery fear-inducing in the eye of those suffering. And this is similar to what we had talked about last week, when eating disorders can act as a coping mechanism for those who have faced trauma or other unpleasant experiences. And such behaviors appear to mitigate the hyperarousal or anxiety associated with trauma or can be an attempt to numb or avoid the traumatic experiences. So as you can see, it all kind of comes together. (laughs) Um, And to this day... The Minnesota starvation experiment is a critical and instrumental piece of research used in the understanding and and treatment of eating disorders, specifically bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating disorder, BED. So this was fascinating to to read about. And then also during this time, there was the emergence of psychoanalysis, which generally explained anorexia and bulimia by their supposed correlation to sexual dissonance. And this rhetoric continued for nearly 40 years, which was very harmful to the experience of those dealing with eating disorders and was largely disproved. And then during the 1970s, so the Minnesota starvation experiment was in 1944 to 1945. And you have continued rhetoric about psychoanalysis in relation to eating disorders. And then in the 1970s, so roughly 30 years afterwards, you have psychoanalysis Dr. Hild Bruch, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but she authored more than 250 articles and six books, all of which helped to introduce eating disorders into popular discourse. And despite pioneering research and discussions surrounding eating disorders, the publishing of her findings coincided with an increase in both anorexia and bulimia rates within the United States. So that was an unfortunate, obviously, result of her of her publishing and a lot of her uh books and articles today have been disproved she did obviously help introduce eating disorders into popular discourse and like outside of the medical community so people could be validated in their experience with eating disorders during this time but also was harmful in the introduction of talking about eating disorders. And then we have other psychiatrists during this time period, so during like the 1970s, 1980s, who contributed to the expanding research on disordered eating by charting the frequent behavior patterns existing in their patients with compulsive food intake or restriction and weight concerns. So in the late 1970s, British psychiatrist Gerard Russell published a case series of 30 patients who were engaged in bulimic practices including self-induced vomiting to lessen the effects of binge eating. So his study, entitled Bulimia Nervosa, an ominous variant of anorexia nervosa, was the first clinical paper published on the subject. 
It's important to note that bulimia at this point is only defined relationally. It is viewed as a variant of anorexia and there exists little differentiation between the two. And although eating disorders exist in many forms, defining them relationally can be problematic as it has the potential to introduce a hierarchical understanding, ultimately becoming disruptive for survival. So Russell's paper, Bulimia Nervosa, an ominous variant of anorexia nervosa, those two things are combined, but in the titling of that paper, bulimia is only defined relationally as it, re- as it relates to anorexia, which can be problematic and is there's a fine line between defining them and comparing them to one another and also defining them in a hierarchy. And then Russell's name also became the moniker of an alleged telltale sign of bulimia, which was the abrasive and calloused knuckles. Fortunately, this moniker is no longer used as life-threatening behaviors of one suffering from bulimia, bulimia must not be commodified, stigmatized, or invalidated in any such way as having the moniker of Gerard Russell explain a telltale sign, uh, a telltale sign, like an alleged telltale sign of, of bulimia, when we know that that's not the case. And we also know that this, this psychiatrist was largely wrong in his studies around bulimia. Um, and then bulimia became first introduced in the DSM in 1980. So anorexia nervosa was included in the DSM in 1952. So 28 years later, bulimia was introduced in the DSM. 28 years. That's a long time. And it was introduced under a new diagnostic category of eating disorders. So at this point in the 1980s, we sense another shift in eating disorder culture in the medical community. And then anorexia, PICA, rumination disorder, and atypical eating disorder were included at this point in 1980 in the DSM. And the thought in popular culture at this point was far removed from the religious hysteria of the Middle Ages, and instead eating disorders became the pursuit of those seeking supposed bodily perfection. So instead of seeking you know, spiritual perfection as Catherine, St. Catherine of Siena had done, we see the pursuit of eating disorders kind of encompass this bodily perfection And that's not the case for all eating disorders, but that was the tonal shift in eating disorder discourse. And as you can see in the 1900s, mainly the 1940s to the 1970s, the popular discourse surrounding eating disorders was very harmful and problematic to those dealing with eating disorders. And how we talk about eating disorders is just as important as how we understand them. And how eating disorders were talked about was harmful. Other eating disorders, including binge eating disorder, BED, orthorexia, other specified feeding and eating disorders, OFSID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, RFID, and unspecified feeding and eating disorder, UFED, are in their infancy within the medical community at this point. 
BED was first understood as night-eating disorder by psychiatrist Albert Stunkard in 1959, and BED was later disassociated from its required nocturnal component, yet was only formally recognized as an independent disorder within the DSM-5 of 2013. Ironically, the year before I was to develop an eating disorder myself. So you have 1952, anorexia is included in the, in the DSM. You have 1980, bulimia and other eating disorders are included in the DSM and given their own category. So 28 years between those two times, and then you have 33 years until the introduction of binge eating disorder in 2013 in the DSM. So what is that, 60 years? Yeah, roughly 60 years between the introduction of anorexia in the DSM and the introduction of binge eating disorder in the DSM. A long time. (laughs) And despite being the most common eating disorder in the United States with an estimated 2.8 million sufferers, binge eating disorder just seven short years ago was acknowledged by the DSM and thus by insurance companies. And this is kind of a rabbit hole when we talk about insurance companies. And we're going to we're going to talk more in depth about this in a later episode because it deserves its own episode. But most insurance companies do not cover treatment for classifications outside the scope of the DSM. And obviously, this poses a potential threat to treatment for those suffering from unrecognized disorders and has got to be readily addressed if we are to dismantle the barriers to recovery for those with eating disorders seeking treatment. Throughout history, as we've seen today, eating disorders, in addition to the biological, neurological, and psychological definitions attributed, can be defined culturally. An eating disorder may assume different cultural meanings based on the sociocultural climate. From a disorder used to elevate religious status and to ensure closeness to God, to one motivated by a thin ideal, the trajectory of eating disorders is convoluted and perplexing. I believe that it's important to gain a historical framework of eating disorders in order to better address their presence in society today. Before the 1970s, eating disorders were not recognized in American culture. Yet with an increase in obesity rates and increasing cultural fixation on weight and body image, eating disorders soon became permanently interwoven into the fabric of our society. And if the historical lens is any indication, eating disorders demand time. Time to research, time to understand, and time to treat. We have made tremendous advances in the past 40 years, but that is mostly due to the increased prevalence of eating disorders in our society today. There was a demand for knowledge because of the sheer volume of those suffering, and thus eating disorders have become something worth studying. The need for funding inquiry within the eating disorder world is ever-present. As of today... Eating disorders are the deadliest psychiatric illness. Also, as of today, eating disorders are the least funded psychiatric illness. Obviously, this raises a greater discussion question. How do we attribute monetary value or funding to morbidity? And it requires a larger conversation than we have time for in the scope of this episode, Yet it will be something that we explore further. Tragically, 
The length of every episode of HTIL equates to another individual passing in direct consequence of an eating disorder. If you are listening to this, know that you are loved and know that you are worthy of love. Hopefully this is a space in which may prompt or incite healing for you if you're not already on that path. During each episode, I hope to share a piece of art or insight from someone who has suffered from mental illness as an attempt to amplify the voices of those recovering. And this week, I will ironically be sharing a quote from St. Catherine of Siena, who we had mentioned before as having suffered from anorexia mirabilis during her lifetime. She misdirected her love of God into something human, yet there is no doubt her faith was formidable. At her time, eating disorders were 700 years from being discovered, yet her experience must be validated. She says, What is it you want to change? Your hair, your face, your body? Why? For God is in love with all of those things, and he might weep when they are gone. Let us acknowledge, yet not glorify, her ill actions, and let us heed her inspired words. Next week, we will view and hope to understand how culture exists as an etiological factor in eating disorders. Tune in on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast by Monday morning if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these platforms. And please consider sharing this podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. You can also now find HTIL on SoundCloud, where we'll be uploading specific clips from each episode to listen to. And if you're interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment still does. And if you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts, so if you would like to learn more or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on both platforms at Heavier Than I Look. And if you are interested in sharing your story as a feature on the show, please direct message at Heavier Than I Look on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. We would love to hear from you. And finally, let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise but instead wonder how to make that spill space <laughs> one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now, guys. See you next week.